0: Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Today, I'm bringing you one of the most amazing stories of battling through adversity and the power of a positive attitude I've ever personally heard. I'm so excited to get the opportunity to share her experiences with you. So without further ado, this is Keegan Randall's story. Randall comes from a family of skiers. Two of her aunts are cross-country skiers and one is an Olympian. Her father put her on alpine skis the day after her first birthday. At age six, she began her love affair with cross-country skiing in the Anchorage Junior Nordic program in Alaska. But the love didn't catch on immediately. She tried alpine ski racing, soccer, running, and finally landed back at cross-country skiing in high school. When she decided that cross-country skiing was what she wanted to dedicate at least the next phase of her life to, she realized that the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic Games were only two years away. Two years and thousands of practice hours later, an overactive Randall was 19 years old and representing her country on her home turf. All she had to do was push through a race that was one-third uphill, one-third downhill, and one-third flat.
1: Well, I was born in Salt Lake City. My mom was going to law school at the University of Utah. So it felt kind of cool to be going to my first Olympics in my birthplace. It was also nice that we were the home team. So we marched into the opening ceremonies as the last team to a big roar. A lot of friends and family were able to come out and be on course. And it was a venue that I had spent the previous two years getting to know both through my first national championship and my first world cup experience. We're all test events leading in. So I was very familiar with the venue and I knew I was at those Olympics, mostly to gain experience. It, although it was hard not to get caught up in the Olympics, it's kind of all about medals. And my best result at those games was 44th. So I, it really took um, a lot of kind of mental strength and being satisfied with my own effort versus comparing other people's expectations to really come out of those Olympics inspired and not um, feeling like I would never make, make it anywhere. <laughs>
0: That 44th place at her first Olympic Games required Randall to take a step back and question whether or not she was willing to take the time to improve. Was this really the right choice?
1: You know, honestly, that first Olympics was a little bit of a, a fairy tale. It was a really quick road for me from the time I committed to cross-country skiing at 16 and realized like, whoa, like the first year out of high school is gonna be trying to make an Olympic team. And they had just introduced a shorter event called the sprint It was contested for the first time in 2002 and I believe that gave me a little faster track than I would have had had the sprint not been in the games because the sprint is a bit more based on your just raw power and speed whereas the distance capability tends to take years to develop. It also happened that you know the women's field in the US um, is just not quite as deep as it is today So it also opened the door for a younger athlete to come in and I got to make that team, you know, barely 19 years old come in and, um, and really to make my, my first Olympic team so soon after setting that goal, um, in a sport like cross-country skiing, um, was pretty cool. But then having become an Olympian, it was kind of like, well, I've done this now. So what's next? And that's where standing in the crowd, watching the medal winners go up on the podium, I felt really inspired and driven to then say, okay, I want to compete for a medal someday. What's that going to take? And then as I sat down with my coach and he helped me understand the benchmarks I was going to have to clear, well, then all of a sudden it wasn't just going to be this, oh, I'm going to try hard in three years. I'm going to get my goal. It was like, this is actually a 10 year process and. I think because that first couple of years had gone so well for me, I was a little bit naive and uh, ambitious as a young skier and went, well, I'm just gonna work harder and I'm gonna get there faster. But now I have the perspective of, actually, it did take about 10 years to just gradually build up my experience and my physiology um, until I was a contender at the world level.
0: Between the time that she competed in Salt Lake City in 2002, and making the U.S. team again ahead of Torino 2006. Randall completely revamped her training style. So
1: I had my 10-year plan. I started working on it. Kind of first benchmark was to compete against athletes my age at the under-23 World Championships, start to gain World Cup experience. And about two or three years in, that was going okay. I was meeting a lot of those goals. But then at the 2005 World Championships, um, I was struggling. I think I finished almost dead last in one of the distance events. Um, we had a women's team there, but we got, she got pulled out of the relay because we were about to be lapped by Norway. So we didn't even get to finish. And then at the end of that season, um, all of the kids that I'd graduated from high school with were close to getting their university degrees. Meanwhile, I had managed to scrape together a couple of college courses. I wasn't making any money. I wasn't getting the results. And I was seriously questioning a, whether I actually actually had a realistic future in the sport. And two, was this the wisest decision with my time and energy for setting myself up for the future? Um, so it was tempting to almost want to close it down right there. But because I had my roadmap and I just kind of felt compelled to say, let's go to one more Olympics. I've already put the work in for three years. I might as well see it through one more checkpoint. And then I'll know. I'll know if, if there's a future there or not. And that next season, um, the season didn't start off super, super well. I didn't really know where I was at, but I ended up having a big breakthrough at the Olympics. I finished ninth, which was actually ahead of my initial goal of finishing top 20. So that was a big breakthrough that gave me some opportunities to to race world cup at the end of the season where I got a top five. And all of a sudden I was now on track with my plan. And so that was to reflect back on that point, it was like, wow. If I had finished the 2005 season and gone, well, I guess that's a wrap, and kind of walked away, I may have missed out on the incredible future I've ended up having. So it's it's funny when you can go back and look at those points where, gosh,
0: you know, a decision in your way could have drastically changed my life. Between her Olympic showings, Randall was competing on the World Cup circuit as well, making a true name for herself internationally. During that time of trial and error, Randall was one of the only elite American female cross-country skiers in the nation. She had no roadmap of elite achievement to work from. And the first five years of international competition came with a flurry of triumphs and tribulations. As she progressed, her preparation zoned in and her eye for small costly mistakes fine-tuned. I don't think you ever
1: really fully feel like you're good at cross-country skiing. There is always something to be learned, something to be refined. But what I've felt is there's kind of a, a 10 session threshold. So you go out and maybe the first day, your muscles are fresh, it's a new experience. You're like, oh, this cross country thing is great. Yeah, it was a little hard going up the hills, but I love it. And then the next time you go out and you go, holy cow, this is a serious, hard workout. I mean, I'm working my whole body All sorts of little muscles I didn't even know I had are aching. The balance is tricky and the coordination. And a lot of people, I think, end up hitting a wall there and go, well, that's not the sport for me. But if you can stick with it over a few sessions. So if you kind of say, I'm just going to commit to going out 10 times this year. And over that 10 times, I'm literally going to suspend judgment and go, I'm going to believe that every day I'm getting better. And sure enough, after 10 sessions, the body adapts to the feeling of being on a, a faster surface, um, you you start to feel the coordination of the upper body with the lower body. And the physiology kind of starts to adapt to realize that you're you're putting a huge load on your system by integrating your entire body. But it's amazing how our bodies adapt to that. So I found as well trained as I was through my career, the first time I got on snow, it took about 10 sessions before I felt comfortable. I think early on, you're really just trying to kind of set yourself up and, and remind yourself that the preparation is there, that you have the strategy that you're going to kind of, you know, work your way into the race. So even if the first kilometer doesn't go great, you know, you can always kind of think of every piece of the race as, as a new opportunity as you progress into the race. Of course, the physical exertion gets higher and higher. And so you then have to get really good at literally talking yourself through 10 seconds at a time sometimes you get super methodical. You're like literally counting your strides or repeating a word over and over to yourself. And, um, and then in that last bit, you're really just trying to trying to say like, I got to get everything else out. I know my body is screaming at me to just literally stop. And I'm like, gonna say, no, I'm gonna keep going. And I'm gonna try to go faster um, and just push, push, push. And um, yeah, and I mean, the mind wanders all over the place. It's never, it's never 100% positive. And even in the toughest days, it's never hundred percent negative. And even if it is going in the really negative direction, I always tried to kind of like catch it and just reset. And so the beauty of a cross country ski race is you really are in your head. You really are out there for a while, but you get to, you get to work through it. And now that I'm done racing and I don't race every single weekend, I'm kind of going, man, I miss, I miss that challenge because you just don't. You just don't leave
0: the day with the same satisfaction that you do when you put yourself in a race. She finished out the 2006 Olympics in ninth place, the best ever Olympic result in cross-country skiing by an American woman.
1: You sit down in the spring, potentially years out, or even, even leading into that season, and you go, okay, I'm gonna try to tailor my training so that I'm hitting my absolute peak fitness on those dates. Well, you know, it's, it's throwing a dart at a very small target far far away and when you when you come to the championships little things can either make you really on or really off and and we also have the weather conditions to deal with in our sport we also have two techniques and for me personally I was really strong at the skating technique at the freestyle technique and for the classic style that requires a little bit more ta- uh, technique and finesse and I could hit it really well in certain conditions, but certain conditions, it was like I was learning to ski. And so depending on, and, and I also was better at the shorter event versus the longer event. So the way all those line up, there's actually less opportunities than you would think. There's not an opportunity necessarily every year for my best event, particularly at the Olympics. So the sprint, 2002, it was skate. 2006, it was skate. And then after 2006, they said, well, maybe, maybe we should start alternating so that each, you know, every skier gets a chance kind of at their best event in the short distance. So then in 2010, it was a classic sprint. So I have a big, you know, I have a top 10 in 2006. I should be on track to compete for medals. Well, in 2010, if I, if it had been a skate sprint, I would have absolutely been competitive for a medal, but in classic, I had never broken the top 12 up to that point, which meant making into the semifinals. So I ended up finishing eighth in 2010 in the classic sprint, which was incredible breakthrough for me, but it wasn't a medal. So then I had to wait till 2014 to then have another chance at a skate
0: sprint. And the same thing was happening at world championships. Vancouver's 2010 Olympics, Randall was entirely bought in. That finals placement allowed her to become the US's best finish in the team sprint and a personal best of eighth in the individual sprint. Her life began to revolve around full body training, specific to the rigors of cross-country skiing, and the 10-year plan was fully on track.
1: About halfway through my career, I started making friends on the World Cup and getting to go over to Europe and train with some of the European teams. So I learned some things about training. We also innovated some things with the American team on our own training. And so all that coming together was this kind of, yeah, long, slow build.
0: That build found her a place in the Alaska Sports Hall of Fame in 2011.
1: It it felt a little funny to me to come when my career was still really hitting its stride. (laughs) And I teased the guys. I'm like, well, you're going to have to update that plaque every year because I still have plans. And it's still a running joke between us. Um, An incredible honor to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Growing up in Alaska was an incredibly unique experience. Alaska doesn't have the in-house professional sports teams like most other places in the U S so the Olympians here are really celebrated and I had incredible role models growing up. And so now to be in the sports hall of fame with many of them is just, is such an honor. And I just am hopeful and excited that there are young athletes strolling through there, looking at the pictures and hopefully someday dreaming about being Olympians as well, because it really has been an incredible lifestyle and, and journey, and um, it's imp- it's important to have heroes. I really believe that's um, it's inspirational, really, to everyone. Whether you're trying to be trying to be that athlete or or just trying to get out the door and be healthy, and so to be able to have the platform to inspire, it's a really cool part of my job.
0: Her job brought forth another world stage opportunity in 2014 Sochi Olympics. 12 years after she had begun to dedicate her life to cross-country skiing, she was finally a medal contender and a gold at that. She entered Sochi poised, dangerous, and powered by those three elusive podium spots. She was coming off a World Cup season that won her gold in the team sprint and armed with individual events across Europe that had first place podium spots emblazoned with her name as soon as she stepped onto the snow. She and teammate Jessie Diggins were taking over and could easily have swept the competition yet again. Then the Sochi Olympics played out. Randall was neck and neck with Norway's Merit Bjorgen for first place in the heat. Three-fourths of the way through the race, Randall began to slow. She was passed by Denise Herman of Germany and in the race's final strides, Guy of Yurik of Italy. Randall missed out on the podium finish by seven one-hundredths of a second.
1: You hear a lot of sports, you know, like an Alpine racer. They're the only one on course at the one at a time. So they literally can visualize every single turn and how they're going to do it. And in cross-country skiing, uh, you can kind of visualize how you think it might go. But if someone goes hard off the front or if people are playing tactically, or if you get boxed in or you crash and have to get up, you kind of prepare, but you're also prepared to be ready for anything. And um, and that's what I loved about head-to-head racing is you never knew exactly what you were getting into. So um, the cool part about cross-country skiing is it had a little bit of everything. It had those days when it was just like you against the clock, you had, you were maybe getting some indication of how your competitors were doing, but you knew it was close. You knew every second counted. So you just had to go, just go like crazy.
0: Even as she trekked back from Russia, disappointed in her finish, she wasn't disappointed in herself.
1: There are certain days when, you know, you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and maybe physically you don't feel great. And, you know, mentally, you know, maybe the, the negative voice kind of starts to win over. You know, it starts to remind you of how hard this is and how good your competition looks and how much pressure there is. But you, but over time, I got better at better recognizing what was helpful and what wasn't. And um, when I felt those expectations really building up to just kind of bring it back to what I could control, right in front of me. And that was, well, I can do my training today. I can do my warm-up today. I can make sure my skis are ready. Um if I'm in a race, I can literally focus on the hundred meters right in front of me and not think about the nine other kilometers I have to race at this point. So you just get really good at playing games with yourself. Um I also got to do a, a mental sports skills training um when I was on my first few years in the national team. And that was helpful because we got introduced to all the different types of mental training there there are it's goal setting it's relaxation it's um you know getting your nerves at just the right point it's positive self-talk it's visualization so because i got a broad education on all those things then i was able to start picking and choosing what things worked best for me and you know it was it's it's a mental battle always like even up even up to my fifth olympics my 17th olympic race The whole day, we didn't race till 5 p.m. in the evening. So the whole day, I'm like, it's all self-talk. It's all, okay, we're ready, you know, stay loose, you know, have fun, enjoy your teammates, Um, you know, do what you need to do, eat the right things, but just not focus, you know, not focus on the medals, just focus on, I'm going to go out there and execute my plan and ski the best I can, and I'm going to be ready for anything. And um, so you just get a lot of practice. And what I've realized is that those skills were really important in sports, But those are the same skills we all use in everyday life. When we've been going through COVID together, I mean, so much out of our control, so much you could get overwhelmed with, get negative. And yet I use those same skills to kind of recognize the conversation in my mind, to pull myself back into the moment and focus on things I could control
0: and to always stay hopeful that the future will be good. The mentality required to rationalize working harder finally paid off in 2018. 16 years after 19-year-old Randall tested her luck in Salt Lake City, and 18 race attempts later, a 35-year-old iteration finally found herself on an Olympic podium in her final Olympic competition. Around her neck, not a bronze, not a silver, a shiny gold medal, symbolizing years of reckless dedication to her craft. Up on the podium with her, Team USA's Team Sprint Free Team member Diggins. Randall and Diggins became the first. US women's team to ever win a gold medal in cross-country skiing. I'd come into the 2018
1: Olympics actually quite nervous because I'd had a foot injury um, stress fracture and had spent the previous six weeks doing alternative training, not not really racing, not proving to myself my fitness was there and my teammates were all skiing really fast, which meant when it came down to who was chosen to ski each race, I wasn't sure I would get selected. So I went into the those Olympics really holding my breath. Um, thankfully I got an opportunity in the opening race while it wasn't a spectacular result. It showed potential. And then literally every day in every race I was, I was improving and my trajectory was clearly coming up. And so I got a call really at the last minute to be on the team sprint and which was incredible news, but also a lot of pressure because, um, that race was really stacked with some of the greatest athletes of Uh, that have ever been in the sport and we were kind of the underdogs but we knew we could be in there so we know what happens we ended up winning the gold medal uh got to finish my career on the highest of high notes I mean you can't write a story that good so I was definitely on cloud nine I also was just feeling so happy to wrap up my career and to be able to transition to the next chapter of my life and my son Breck was two at the time and we had just moved to Canada so we were re- really had a fresh start and had had the most wonderful Mother's Day. Beautiful outside. I'm out on a hike with my husband and my son and just like letting myself think, wow, life is just incredible right now.
0: That Mother's Day was one which Randall would remember forever.
1: And I'm very ironic that getting ready for bed that night is when I discovered just the smallest, almost pebble-sized lump on my chest. And thankfully had the education to know, to get it checked right away. And it was about two weeks later that I learned it was aggressive breast cancer. And in, the in in an instant, my whole world changed because you kind of get this feeling of invincibility as a physically strong, accomplished athlete. And then to suddenly think like, this cancer is growing in my body and there are treatments, but you just never know what's gonna happen so much was outside of my control and to have a two-year-old son at the time i think it just it just really hits home of like holy cow am i gonna be here as he grows up and so that hit me all at once but it was kind of crazy how reflexively i went right back into athlete mode and i kind of said like okay what can i control what can i not i need a plan i need a team um i'm just okay i'm i'm just gonna get through this i'm you know, gonna not let myself focus on the, the what ifs. And and I was really lucky to have my family around me and they were also really good at just keeping things kind of high level positive. You know, we caught it early. So we had a good prognosis, we had a treatment plan and, um, and really just kind of like I would in a race, just switched my focus to like, okay, what do I need to do today? And just getting through it one step at a time. So I'm grateful to have had so much practice Uh, with the mental side leading into that and I think any other major injury I'd I'd ever encountered there was always some way I could kind of outwork it so if it was a foot injury I could use my arms or if I couldn't ski I could be in the pool and you know through those injuries there was a lot of times where I would feel a little hopeless or I get a little down or um but usually I could turn it around because I had something to focus on that I could do about it. And with cancer, I couldn't just outwill it or outwork it. I kind of just had to let it affect my body, but I knew staying active was gonna be important. So I really tried to put my focus on keeping an open mind and trying to see what I could do, knowing that the goal was to give my body the the energy it needed to, to fight this battle. So I wasn't trying to be like in top shape and break my body down, but I also knew that I responded really well to that daily stimulus of activity. So I kind of ahead of time, tried to bake into my treatment plan ways to stay active. So I asked a lot of questions of all my doctors about, you know, are there parameters, you know, what can I do? What do you think about this? And that was really important because without asking those questions, I would have never gotten those answers. Like the the way our system is set up they talk about specifically the medication and the treatment, but they don't talk about how physical activity can play a role in that. So I decided I'd ride my bike to and from every chemo session. And the doctors felt comfortable with that. I would hit the gym on the way to the chemo session because I knew prior to getting hooked up to the IV that I felt pretty good. So I'd get the workout in knowing I was feeling good. And then I could just kind of be content to sit in the chemo chair and just go, okay, now I'm ready to ride out whatever comes. And my chemo sessions were sped out over three weeks. And so I would usually feel pretty, pretty rough for a few days, but I promised myself I would get out the door for at least 10 minutes of activity. And because I'd made that commitment to myself ahead of time, there were days when I was laying on the couch, feeling miserable. And the last thing I wanted to do was get outside. But I said, I made the promise. So I'd get up and I would do 10 minutes. And after moving for 10 minutes, even if it was a slow walk around the block, usually I would talk myself into another 10 minutes and one day it turned into four hours. Um, because I think the activity just like moving one, it was what my body was used to, but two, it gave my mind something to focus on besides how crummy I was feeling or what some of the worst case scenarios are or the unfairness of it all, or all those emotions you're processing. It's like being
0: active. It, it automatically helped my mind stay more positive. Randall's medical staff diagnosed her with stage 2 invasive ductal carcinoma. She underwent 6 rounds of chemotherapy, 33 sessions of radiation, a lumpectomy, and a follow-up surgery, during which time she recorded a daily video blog. 160 days of her treatment were commemorated in hopes that others with similar stories would garner the strength, support, and understanding they needed from watching her struggles.
1: There were tough times, but... 10 months of really intense treatment and through it all, I think I came out of it like pretty darn well. Um, you know, I lost my hair, but there were some benefits to that in the hot, hot summer. And, um, when you get knocked down like that, when you come back up, it feels darn good. So I kind of feel like coming off my Olympic ski career, I probably would have complained that I'll never be as fit as I was, but because I've experienced cancer treatment so quickly after that, Now, every day is like, wow, well, this feels so much better than that did. So it's a pretty good day.
0: Suddenly, Randall's trademark pink hair
1: took on a different meaning. When I had pink hair pre-cancer, every so often I get asked, oh, are you supporting breast cancer awareness? And I would always reply, well, of course I am, but I don't have a personal connection to it. And my hair is pink for these other reasons. Um, I was also really involved with an organization called Fast and Female, that's all about keep getting girls into sports and keeping them in sports, and so pink has always been kind of this energy color for me and a way to show kind of the fun side. And um, so now that my hair has grown back and I get to put the pink back in again, um, it really is just kind of this representation to me of um, embrace the best and do your, do your best every day because that's all you know you have, and um, you know celebrate celebrate
0: the joy and the fun part. Even though she had since moved to Canada. Randall still had the support of the USOPC, who helped pay for the millions of dollars of hospital bills she accrued over her stay. The caveat was that Randall would be required to seek medical treatment in the United States in order for the insurance to work out. And as we
1: reviewed my case, they were giving me the same advice that the doctors I had connected with in Anchorage to kind of vet my options up there. And so then it was like, well, if I'm going to be doing the same treatment no matter where I am, I might, as well, I might as well be in a place where I literally know the doctors. I'm familiar with the the treatment center, and I'll have all my friends and family around me. So the only downside was it meant I was commuting for my chemotherapy between uh, British Columbia and Anchorage, and so I would fly with a like full on N95 mask, which at the time, you know, we didn't even really understand what an N95 really was. Um, and I, and I was very cautious about keeping myself um, healthy because that could have created some real problems. And thankfully I was able to go back and forth from my treatments and, and make it all work. And I was really grateful that I could go through this major challenge in my life with people that I l- knew so well. And I was also doing my treatment at the Providence Cancer Center where my providers were literally in the same building on different floors. So they knew each other and, and we were, I was able to cultivate a real team approach which is not always the case. Sometimes you're seeing an oncologist one place and a radiation oncologist another place and your surgeon is totally somewhere else and they don't necessarily all work together. So I felt really lucky that I got to do my care in, in a place that
0: was so familiar. Brandle finished her active treatment in January of 2019 and has been unstoppable since. Throughout everything in her life, being active has always been what pushed her through
1: really in that first year, I, I bounced back incredibly well. I mean, I, I ran the New York city marathon in November of 20, uh, eight, 2019. Um, and ran, um, a sub three hour time, which would, which was my goal before I ever knew cancer was part of my story. So I was really happy with that. That just kind of taught me that, um, I think staying active through my treatment was a big piece of that, but then just the motivation now, when I'm out there pushing myself, it's like, this is a pain I get to control. And I know there's a good outcome from it. So I kind of, then it helps me embrace the pain a little bit and look for it. Um, cause I like challenging myself. So yeah, to bounce back for that result and really just get back into being active every day. Um, yeah, most, most times in the day, I don't even think about cancer as part of my story. Thankfully, although it is one of those things that it's, it's always going to be part of my story because cancer is never something you can be like, well, I dealt with that. And now it's out of the, out of my mind. Um, you know, so I get, I get checked every six months and, um, just try to keep doing those healthy lifestyle things that I had to do, had to do as an athlete to perform. And ironically now, you know, really need to do to keep myself, um, as healthy as possible. So I'm not perfect hundred percent. Um, I also enjoy my things here and there, but, um, at the end of the day, I keep, you know, that's always kind of my goal. And, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful that three years later I'm doing really well.
0: Now she works with the Anchorage Junior Nordic Program, her Alaskan roots, to help propel the future of the U.S.'s Winter Olympians. It is
1: a really cool full circle moment for me to be back in Anchorage leading the Anchorage or the Nordic Skiing Association of Anchorage, which is the program that I did get started in and literally uh, developed through. I started as a young junior Nordic um, polar cub and then became a middle school racer and a high school racer. I got to race the popular events. Like we just, this past weekend, we had a 50 K event that goes from one end of town to the other that I did as a kid and then raced Olympic trials here. And so now to be able to have spent 20 years traveling around the world, seeing different venues, different formats of competition, meeting so many people that are connected with various programs around the country, and then be able to come back to Anchorage and take an organization that's been doing amazing things for 50 years but yet still has so much potential because the sport is always changing um, to come back and apply that experience. I, I can't imagine a better position. And after I retired from racing, it's, it's really been this exploration process of how do I take that 20 years, which is not your standard resume builder, understand it myself, but then also put it into a role that will provide the matchup with my skills and experiences, plus the same passion I, I had in sport. And so I'm getting to do that all with the Nordic Skiing Association now. And, uh, you know, like any new job, it's, it's a lot of learning. And, you know, I had never encountered insurance renewals before, or, you know, I'm running payroll for 160 coaches. And so I'm gaining a lot of just like hard skills too um, through learning, but it's really fun to see the potential here and to help be, hopefully a connector in the community to, to continue growing what we've already got.
0: When the time for Beijing's competition came around, NBC Sports reached out to Randall to inquire if she'd like to join the broadcast team as an analyst for the 2022 Winter Olympics. This was the first Olympics she hadn't been competing in since 2002, and she welcomed the opportunity with open arms.
1: I felt very content to in the racing that I've done to the point where I can say, wow, great. You know, I don't feel like I need to be out there racing. I'm really excited to watch the athletes do their thing and to be able to play another role in the sport. and help share what's going on because I can put myself in their shoes. I know exactly how they're feeling at this point in the race. I know, know these racers really well, having raced against a lot of them, you know, knowing what's going on in the skis, which are these kind of underlying stories. So I really enjoyed commentating and I got to work with a really great team. Uh, Chad Samla, who was the other color analyst, he and I go way back and he was, um, uh, really great at getting into some of the statistics and, uh, and picking out things. I could speak a little bit more to the athlete perspective. And then Steve Schlanger, our play-by-play announcer was always really good at setting the scene, you know, really playing the conductor in our group and the races just flew by. It it was an adrenaline rush as much as, as it is racing, uh, to call the races and, particularly to see the U.S. team do so well, to have some of those agonizingly close finishes, to see some unexpected competitors come through, just all around, it was really, really fun. And um, I've heard a lot of people that were felt excited about it as well. So that just makes me happy for the sport of cross-country skiing.
0: She even got a kick of adrenaline after she got to watch Diggins cross the finish line and win silver and bronze medals for the United States.
1: Well, I think the funniest part for me at this point is that Jesse's always been like the little sister on the team. You know, we called her our sparkle chip monk because she just had so much youth and enthusiasm and energy and glitter. Um, and now she's the, the veteran on the team. You know, she's really stewarding this group of younger women and being a leader. And it's cool to see her having reached so many great performance heights, but also just being a great representative for the team and the sport and then being that leader mentor. Um, so having known her for, yeah, almost 15 years at this point and seeing her progression from like literally the first time I ever saw her, it was a, it was a ponytail bopping along at a junior national race. And I just kind of recognized that there was something unique about her energy. And she showed up a couple of years later on the world championship teams at 19 years old. And she's just always brought so much energy and, and dedication. Um, and I think what she showed us all in Beijing is she is the grittiest racer out there. Like she can dig into the pain cave deeper than anyone I've ever met. And um, she took on uh, both her and Rosie Brennan took on an ambitious schedule. They, they raced all six events, which I think was over a hundred kilometers of racing by the end of the championships or something crazy. And, uh, and of course the conditions in Beijing were, were really challenging with the cold weather and the s- slow snow and the altitude. And, um, and just, they really just put their best foot forward every single day. Jesse came through with two medals. The relay teams were both kind of like incredibly close, agonizingly close to medals again, but not quite. Um, and I just, felt, I just felt really proud and, and really happy for, for the athletes who have become just such great friends to see them uh, doing their best and, and getting through all the challenges and being these incredible inspirational role models.
0: Randall is excited to see the athlete she's competed with and coached at the peaks of their career. But she doesn't like defining a, quote, peak herself. Prior to my career,
1: no American woman had ever been top 10 at a world championships, top 10 at Olympics. And we certainly had never been competitive in relays. And so it's pretty cool to walk away from my career with three world championship medals, with an Olympic medal, with three overall World Cup crystal globes in sprint, and just go, holy cow, like that wasn't even supposed to be possible. And now the skiers are taking it to even greater heights. So... It's a pretty cool change in trajectory. Well, I love to talk about this, you know, grant this grand ten-year plan I made to win Olympic medal and how, you know, it's all about just just make the plan and off you go. And now that I'm kind of thinking about what's that next ten-year plan, all of a sudden I realize that real life is a little bit more ambiguous, and it's a little hard to say like what do I want to be doing ten years from now. But after a couple of years of exploration, um, going through the cancer experience, going through the COVID experience, um, my goal really is to. To keep challenging myself, to keep um, living each day to the fullest, and right now I have a, a little boy who's almost six, and he is just um, the light of my life. So um, we're really trying to build our lifestyle around uh, time together, um, time exploring, and you know ways that I can still keep in decent shape. Um, you know, keep doing the job that I love, but really get a lot of family time, and just you know, you'll never find the complete balance. But I feel like I've helped in the last six months in particular, kind of reorient my life around what's most important to me.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into episode 59, of Closer Mentality. Before we end today's episode, I just want to give a big shout out to today's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. All of the stories I've told thus far have been the vulnerabilities of elite athletes and team personnel. But what happens before they're comfortable speaking about some of the most difficult times in their lives on such a public forum? Nearly all of them have utilized either a sports psychologist or a therapist. Now, I'm bringing that option to you, the listeners. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way. I'm working with BetterHelp to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them at any time. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that. They offer financial aid if funding is the only thing standing between you and getting the help you need. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. I have a special offer for all Closer Mentality listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com forward slash Closer Mentality. That's BetterHelp.com forward slash Closer Mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The link is also in the show notes. As we wind down episode 59 of Closer Mentality, I also want to point you all to the show notes again. Keegan's cancer journey spurred on a collection of cool, colorful, and funky socks. She also donates proceeds to Active Against Cancer, an initiative which works to ensure the physical activity is recommended during cancer treatment. The link to check those out and support a great cause is down in the show notes as well. Keegan's socials are at Keek Animal on Instagram and Twitter. You can also watch our entire interview on YouTube at Closure Mentality Uncensored's page. Thanks so much for listening to week four of Closure Mentality's National Women's History Month stories. Next week rounds the programming out with Team Australia snowboarder Maddie Himbury. I can't wait to share her story with you. But until then, see you next week.